Okay, um, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about something that I've been talking about at the uh, Awana conferences. And unfortunately, with the Awana conferences, I only had one, uh, well, actually 50 minutes to, to give the message. And there's so many uh, things that need uh, to be discussed about this um, that I thought I'd spend two or three weeks talking about it. It's um, basically I'm going to be dealing with uh, the book called the uh, the Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown. It's a novel, um, and um, uh, unfortunately, what I'm finding out is that there are an awful lot of Christians that have been witnessing to their loved ones and their friends over the years, and their loved ones and their friends often show no sign whatsoever of any interest in, in things of the spiritual realm. And then all of a sudden, their friends have had this spiritual, quote-unquote, revival, and lo and, the bold, lo, lo and behold, they buy a uh, Christmas present or a uh, birthday present for their Christian friends, and it's the Da Vinci Code. And they tell them, just read this book. It's transformed my life. Well, it may have transformed their life, but it did not bring them closer to the true God of the Bible. Uh, the Da Vinci Code is an anti-Christian diatribe. It's, uh, it's an attack on biblical Christianity. And it's a, an attempt to promote uh, a new type of Christianity, uh, which is uh, more of a, a neo-pagan uh, worship uh, of the self than anything else. Um, let me just point out a few verses to show that uh, the Scriptures told us that time and time again this, thing is, this type of thing is going to happen. This should not shock us. Okay? This is the way the world operates. Okay? Um, if the facts, if the world doesn't like the facts and the facts point to Jesus, the world makes up its own pseudo-facts. And that's what Mr. Brown is doing. Um, I mean, I have spoken for years refuting the, the Jesus Seminar, um, even challenged the, the, the lead man of the Jesus Seminar to a debate he didn't uh, accept. But the Jesus Seminar is as, as far left and as radical and as anti-Christian as you can get and still call yourself a New Testament scholar. Even the Jesus Seminar, the members of the Jesus Seminar are now writing articles refuting the pseudo-history of the Da Vinci Code. So, I mean, this guy is so far out in left field that even anti-Christian scholars acknowledge the errors that he's making. Um, unfortunately, the average American doesn't know a lot about the, the present state of New Testament scholarship. The average American is unaware of uh, the history of the Christian church, the history of Christian thought. Um, and, and so that's rather unfortunate. Uh, it's really interesting, too, because uh, one of the courses I teach at King's West, and it wasn't my idea to teach it, is the history of Christian thought. And lo and behold, in that course, um, um, basically just by studying the history, history of Christian thought, it, it, it's a response to all the uh, uh, pseudo-historical claims made uh, by uh, Dan Brown and his work the uh, Da Vinci Code. So the Da Vinci Code, in reality, is the Da Vinci fraud or the Da Vinci myth, fairy tale, whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's not real. Okay? Now, let me say this. You know, um, novel, historically, it's been, it's, it's been accepted that when you write a novel, when you write a fairy tale, 
if you're a brilliant author, you probably have an agenda, you probably have a view about reality, and you want to share those views with others, so you think of a creative way of doing it, and you write a novel. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and, you know an atheist will write uh, a novel, and in his novel, in his story that isn't true, um, he'll throw in his atheistic philosophy. And we can disagree with the atheistic philosophy, but, you know, the guy's got the right to do that. Christian authors like C.S. Lewis and, 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 and Tolkien, they can write mythology or stories, okay? They can write fiction, they can write novels, um, and teach, promote Christianity in there. And there's no foul there. The problem with Dan Brown is he's writing a novel which he acknowledges as a novel. It's a work of fiction, and that's okay at that point. But then he claims the historical things and the documents uh, that are being spoken of are, in fact, uh, reality, are, in fact, true. So he's claiming to give us a true assessment of history uh, as the background of his novel. So, in other words, his lead characters don't really exist, but even though his lead characters don't really exist, he claims that the code they're uncovering, the code they're deciphering, is real. Okay, and, and see, he, he open up his book, and it's you come to a page right before the first chapter. In fact, it's uh, before the prologue, and it says, Fact. And then he lists a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, which he claims is fact within the pages of his book. And if you go to his website, danbrown.com or whatever it is, um, he's claiming that, oh yeah, this stuff is real. True Christianity was hijacked by a bunch, basically by a bunch of male chauvinist pigs who were afraid of a powerful woman. And the story goes on and on. And they turned Jesus into a God, but he really wasn't God. Let me just read the last little sentence here on this page called Fact. And Dan Brown says this, all descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. So that's my problem, and that's the problem that Christian scholars have with Dan Brown. It's not that he wrote a novel, and it's not that he hates Christianity. He has the, he has the freedom to hate Christianity, okay? But he's claiming that the fairy tale history, that he, he really didn't invent this fairy tale history. He actually got it from other... Uh, books like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, um, written by other occultists, other neo-pagans uh, who get into the Knights Templar and, and things of that sort and are trying to blend Christianity with New Age type thought. And so, uh, but that's pseudo-history. There's no evidence for this. All the evidence goes against this. But we're going to, unfortunately, we're going to need to respond um, to this. Now, in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that the overseer, the senior pastor of a local church, is not only supposed to be able to exhort his people in sound doctrine, not only to be able to encourage his people in sound doctrine, but refute those who contradict. So the unfortunate thing is, it's my job today and probably next week, not to refute the Da Vinci Code because it's, it's a scholarly attack on Christianity, but to refute the Da Vinci Code because it's a popular attack on Christianity. Um, and um, 
The scary thing is, too, scholarship is getting more and more postmodern. They're denying absolute truth. They're denying real history. So in the end, uh, guys like Dan Brown are going to receive a blank check, even in scholarly circles, to make history say whatever you want it to say. Okay? We already see something like that going on with Elaine Pagels at Princeton University, one of uh, uh, America's uh, Ivy League schools. Um, so, uh, whatever the case, take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And Paul says this to Timothy. Now, Paul's about to die, so he's got some really important information to pass on to Timothy. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, the word for fables there, the basic root word is, is uh, mythos. We get our word myth from it. Okay, so more little literal translation there would be myth, and we are living in a day postmodernism, since it denies absolute truth. We are seeing a, a return of the ancient pagan myths. So Dan Brown is just one of many voices. Right now, he's the loudest voices, the loudest voice, but he's one of many voices that are calling for a return to ancient myths. In fact, Dan Brown wants us to return to an ancient uh, Christian heresy, a false belief system that claimed to be Christianity called Gnosticism, salvation through secret knowledge that only the initiated few could, could attain to. Um, he wants us to return to a blending of that, of ancient Gnosticism, a blending of that and goddess worship. Okay? Pagan goddess worship. So that's his agenda. And, um, and so he spins stories and claims that they're real history. And I'll tell you, in postmodern circles, with the current rejection of absolute truth in scholarly places, we are not far from somebody like promoting Dan Brown's work um, as, as, as if it were historical. Um, because once you throw real objective history out the window and you acknowledge that each person is a product of their own community, and the narrative of the story, once truth is gone, all that's left are stories, then uh, basically if radical women's livers or radical pro-abortionists or, you know, radical, you fill in the blank, if they want to rewrite history in accordance with uh, their agenda, they have that right to do so. And so uh, um, it's, it's really weird, but in academic circles, there's, there's probably not much... And, you know, non-Christian academic circles, there's probably not much time left to refute this guy because eventually history is going to be whatever you want to make it. Um, history is, will be like everything else. It just serves your purposes to uh, justify you believing what you feel like believing. Paul says that we have to preach the Word um, because a time is coming when people will turn from the truth and turn aside to fables or to myths. Now, take a look at what Peter says in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 
Peter says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, again, myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You see, even the most liberal and anti-Christian of all New Testament scholars will acknowledge that uh, the New Testament was written, some, some would say, between the 30s A.D. and 80 or 90 A.D., Others would say uh, between um, six, well, between 50 A.D. because of Paul's writings and about 100, maybe 110 A.D. tops. Okay, basically all the New Testament books were either written by eyewitnesses or people who knew eyewitnesses. Now, what I just said there, okay, is agreed upon even if you're as far left as the Jesus Seminar. There are no scholars, no New Testament scholars or historical scholars that would deny that statement right now. That's how strong the historical evidence for Christianity is. Uh, Dan Brown, on the other hand, chooses uh, to rely upon ancient Gnostic heretical writings like the Gospel of Thomas, which really wasn't written by Thomas. No one ever believed it was written by Thomas. Uh, The Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Mary. Okay? All these writings date between 140, the original composition, between 140 A.D., that's 110 years after uh, Jesus walked the earth, between 140 A.D. and about 250 to 300 A.D. And those are about the earliest dates that you could possibly give to those writings. And, um, and he's saying that they more accurately represent the true teachings of Jesus. And by the way, they only teach about one-tenth of what Dan Brown teaches. Most of what he teaches, you've got to read 20th century um, conspiracy nuts. And I mean, believe me, I, I don't think, I think that there's some evil people conspiring behind closed doors um, to enslave the multitudes, okay? Um, so I'm not a guy who rejects conspiracy theories just because it's a conspiracy theory. But if there's no evidence for your conspiracy theory and you present bogus documents and some of your people get arrested for perjury and you view them as a reliable source, um, you know, all I could say is, you know, sometime uh, visit the real world, okay? Dan Brown needs to visit the real world. Unfortunately, um, it seems that uh, many Americans would rather visit Dan Brown's unreal world, and, and that's rather unfortunate. Now, the Gnosticism that he proclaims, uh, just look at John chapter 19. You know, Jesus' secret teachings, okay? Let me say this. It, it's been agreed upon by many New Testament scholars that John's Gospel was probably written uh, about 85 to 95 A.D. Even conservative scholars hold to that. We now have some scholars who are arguing for John's Gospel. Charles Worth out of... Uh, uh, Princeton, who is not a conservative scholar, is now arguing that John's Gospel should be dated to the mid-50s A.D. But whatever way you look at it, John's Gospel is written somewhere between 50 and 95 A.D. Some, some scholars would try to stretch it to 110 A.D., but that's only because they're trying to reject what it teaches. Okay? Um, so we go to the earlier sources, and what do they tell us about, about Jesus? Uh, in fact, I think it's, it's actually John 18, verse 20. Um, 
Jesus is on trial before the high priest, and he says this. It says, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. That disqualifies Jesus right there for being a Gnostic teacher. I mean, you can't... If, Gnostics believe in salvation through secret knowledge, not salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. Jesus said, look, I didn't speak in secret. I went into the synagogues. I spoke in public places. And so Jesus is saying, why do you have to question me about what I taught? I shouted my message from the rooftops. I had nothing to hide. That's the exact opposite of the world of the Gnostics, the world of the secret handshakes, the world of, uh, you know, initiating the higher degrees uh, behind closed doors where only the few, the intellectuals, could attain to the knowledge. Jesus, Jesus did not go to the intellectual elite. He proclaimed his message to the masses. He had nothing to hide. He was as far from being a Gnostic as you could possibly be. So, let's take a look at the Da Vinci Code, and, and then we'll try to point out a few areas where uh, Dan Brown misses the boat. I'll give you a little bit of an overview on his novel. By I'll, I'll read uh, one quote. I don't want to spend too much time reading quotes from it. Um, uh, uh, but by the way, f first turn to the back, the last page. Um, if you want some excellent books, and you can get most of these books right at Barnes & Noble, okay? Usually where they put the Da Vinci Code. By the way, if you think that, you know, why is Pastor Phil speaking on this? It's not that important. Walk into Barnes & Noble, and just in that little foyer, before you get through the second door, just look to your right. Every book on that shelf, many of those books have been out of print for years. Now they're back in print because of the Da Vinci Code. Um, many of the books were written because of the Da Vinci Code. And they're all a bunch of garbage books about Gnosticism, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, uh, other writings, uh, the, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail type books, Search for the Holy Grail, the Knights Templar. And all it is is occultism, the secret arts, the hidden forbidden arts, the world of the occult, the world of the demonic realm, dressed up in Christian terminology so that... Um, uh, we can feel comfortable with it, we Americans, who, you know, most of us come from uh, at least a nominally Christian home. But this is having tremendous impact, but you could also buy these books there. The first book I would recommend more than any other, Cracking the Da Vinci Code by James Garlow and Peter Jones, published by Victor Books. Now, outstanding book. I just saw it on the shelf. I'm on the end of the aisles. Just, I wasn't even looking for it. Just walking out of Barnes & Noble, there it was, uh, staring me in the face. In fact, at one time, they had a Da Vinci Code at the end of an aisle, and it was surrounded by seven or eight other books about the Da Vinci Code. And out of those seven or eight books, at least five or six of them were Christian, written books written by noted Christian scholars refuting this work. So um, I don't think any of those books would sell as much as the Da Vinci Code, but I think when you combine all the Christian refutations t together... Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you end up selling over a million books um, that are bought and read uh, by people that actually uh, do refute the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Deception by Erwin Lutzer. The Gospel Code by Ben Witherington III. That's probably uh, 
the Gospel Code one is probably the most difficult to read. Ben Witherington III is uh, one of the leading evangelical New Testament scholars alive today. And um, so he gets really deep into stuff. Sometimes I'm, I'm sitting there scratching my head wondering what in the world is he talking about. And, um, uh, but he's, he, he actually breaks it down well, but every once in a while he just, he's just such a deep thinker on this topic. Breaking the Da Vinci Code by Daryl Bach. He's another really top quality Christian scholar, but I think he breaks it down a little bit more. And, um, and then there's the truth behind the Da Vinci Code by Richard Abanes. It's either Abanes or Abanez. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. And um, um, Abanes is the kind of guy, you know, most of these books just do what I'm going to be doing, and that's refuting the main heretical issues that deal with Christianity and just refuting enough of this guy to show you that Dan Brown doesn't know what he's talking about theologically, historically, um, biblically. Um, but Richard Abanes is the kind of guy, he just decided to try to refute everything that Dan Brown was messed up about. And so there's stuff I would just read in passing where he just mentions some secret order or he mentions, you know, some guy here or something there. And Richard Abanes, and, and that he'll mention, Dan Brown will mention this, this uh, occultic symbol means this. And, this occult, and I just assume, well, he's an occultist, so Dan Brown should know. Well, Richard Abanes researched it, and he can't. Dan Brown can't even get the occultic symbols right. So I guess he just takes occultic symbols and says, "Well, I don't like what it really symbolizes. I want it to symbolize something on my agenda. I'm just going to change the meaning or something. I don't, I don't know what, but um, whatever the case, Dan Brown has proven to me. You know, let, let literary experts be the judge of what's good literature or not. Because I'm not. I mean, I'm so. I like philosophical works. I'm not much on, on novels and stuff, and, and I'm, I'm not, it's not a compliment to myself either because I, I wish I were more creative, more literary, but I'm not even sure I would you know, read Shakespeare and recognize the greatness in his writing. Uh, um, so, uh, so I'm not going to say Dan Brown is a lousy author and a lousy novelist or he's a good one. I'll let the, the Christian literary experts debate that issue. Um, but, you know, maybe he's proven he's a good novelist. I don't know. He's definitely proven he figured out a way to make some big money. Okay, and that's, that's not a slam on him either. I mean, you know, it's what you do with your money that's, you know, and how you got your money, whether through legal means or illegal or serving the Lord or serving self. Um, but um, whatever the case, his knowledge of history is, uh, I would say it's worse than uh, deficient. It's deceptive. This guy has an agenda and he's trying to deceive people. Let me just give you a little overview. The three main characters are Robert Langdon, who's supposed to be... And these are, you know, he, he, he uh, you know, invents these people out of his imagination, which is perfectly okay right, when writing a novel. But Robert Langdon, who is a Harvard professor of religious symbols, and I don't even know if Harvard has a professor of religious symbols. I would not be surprised if they do. And uh, um, Lee Teabing, who's supposed to be an expert on the Holy Grail, there's, there's a wasted life. Um, um, and then Sophie Nauvoo, whose, whose name means new wisdom. You know, from the Greek word Sophia for wisdom. And that, that's what uh, uh, Brown is trying to promote, is the new secret wisdom, the, the, the basically uh, new age Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. It's, it's uh, neo-pagan thought. You see, Brown has an agenda. He's a neo-Gnostic. He wants to bring back ancient Gnosticism, but he's such into 
so radically into feminism, into the radical women's rights movement, which has been, you know, the original, original women's livers were Christian ladies. And then the movement got hijacked, and all they wanted was women to be treated equally with men, and they, they recognized that women were different from men. And when's the last time you saw a man give, give birth to a, a baby, you know, or give birth to another human being? The only time I think that ever happened was, uh, was Adam, and that was a real unique thing. It looked, sounded like... Uh, uh, miraculous cloning or something, God taking Eve from his side. But, um, uh, you know, there's a difference between men and women, and because of that, men have some strengths that women don't have, and women have some strengths that men don't have. And um, so, uh, you know, when everything's said and done, uh, you know, but the, the movement, the, the women's live movement has been taken over basically by lesbian Wiccans. Okay, radical lesbian Wiccans who also happen to be a lot of them Marxists. And, um, and so you get, you get witches in this movement. Uh, you get communists in this movement. Um, uh, ladies who hate men. And, um, and, uh, and so Dan Brown is a, a guy who likes to promote a movement that hates men. He reminds me of uh, Phil Donahue who used to constantly, couldn't go without a program apologizing for being a white European male, you know, and it's like, get over it, Phil. You're a white European American male. I mean, just accept it. Move on now, you know. And um, but uh, whatever the case, um, uh, also, um, and, and, and his his feminism is so strong that it's like the the radical leaders of the feminist movement today that are into goddess worship. Okay, it's like when I debated at W Community College and I kept getting heckled every time I called God a he. Um, you know, go figure. And uh, um, but whatever the case, he tries to blend goddess worship and Gnosticism. You can't do it. And we'll talk about that later. Um, and he's also into the new morality, the new tolerance. You know, pro homosexual rights, pro abortion rights, and you know, and that type of thing. So all this stuff. This is his agenda. It's an anti-Christian agenda, and that forces his views not the evidence, okay? And um, he can title things fact that are not fact so long as they serve his purposes. So I'm going to read to you from 233 and 234, a um, few paragraphs, a, a key portion of the book, The Da Vinci Code, just, just so you can see where he's from. By the way, the more I read this, the more chauvinistic I think this sounds. Because you got this teabing guy, the expert, he'll, he'll give like three paragraphs and then Sophie's over there, um, I don't follow his divinity. And then he comes out with another two paragraphs. And then, not the Son of God? And then he comes up and talks. And you mean this? And you mean, I mean, she sounds like a total blank slate. I mean, if I wrote something like this as a Christian, you know, uh, they would slam me and say, what a male chauvinist pig. The, the woman doesn't know every, anything. She has to be educated by the man, you know. But that's sure the way it sounds. So, so apparently if Dan Brown is right about feminism, he has some chauvinistic influences on his life that need to be deconstructed. Uh, but whatever the case, um, so you're going to hear, whenever my voice shifts, that's, that's, that's Sophie saying, um, educate, educate me, uh, oh, uh, male human, whatever. Um, so now they're talking about the council in IC. Let me say Dan Brown is on... I, let me state this on record. Dan Brown... It's probably the world's leading expert as far as 
a guy who has spoken about the Council of Nicaea more than any other person who knows absolutely nothing about the Council of Nicaea. He doesn't even understand why they met. He doesn't even, I mean, he says there was a close vote. 316 to 2 is not a close vote. If the Raiders lost a football game 316 to 2, I would not say that's a close vote. But he doesn't even know why these guys met and what the issue was they were debating. And we'll talk about that. So he talks about the Council of Nicaea. Um, and uh, it, it states as follows. At this gathering, T. Bing said, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. I don't follow his divinity. Okay, you know, that's Sophie. Um, my dear T. Bing declared... Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Not the Son of God? Right, Tebing said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? I'm going to stop right there. He never complains about the votes the Jesus Seminar has taken. So when liberals take votes 2,000 years later as to which sayings Jesus actually said and which sayings we should throw out of the Gospels, I guess that kind of voting is okay. But when a bunch of theologians get together to vote on a theological issue and they're all studying the same scriptures to try to arrive at the conclusion, uh, I guess that vote's not okay. But whatever the case, he misses the whole idea what the vote was about, so it's almost irrelevant. Okay, he says, uh, so she says, uh, hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that. Again, 316 to 2 is a relatively close vote. Uh, T being added, nonetheless, establishing Christ's divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire and to the new Vatican power base. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchallengeable. And then he says further, Many scholars claim that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking, and there's some really powerful words here, his, uh, they, the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity and using it to expand their own power. The twist is this, T. Bing said, talking faster now, um, because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four, century after, four centuries after Jesus' death, thousands of documents already existed chronicling his life as a mortal man. To rewrite the history books, Constantine knew he would need a bold stroke. From this sprang the most profound moment in Christian history. He being paused, eyeing Sophie, Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those, omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits. Hey, I don't know what he's talking about. The Christian church has always taught that Jesus is human. He's fully human and he's fully God. It's called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Jesus is one person with two natures forever. He is fully God and fully man. He always existed as God, the Son, at a point in time, um, he became a man and added a human nature. Uh, this guy's acting like the Christians today don't teach that Jesus is God and he's not really a man. He 
doesn't even know what Christianity teaches. Uh, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers he just ignores. Um, yeah, what Kurt's talking about the Apostolic Fathers, something I'll talk about later on. But you can go to Barnes and Noble, pull the Apostolic Fathers. They were the, right off the shelf. They've got one volume set. They were the pupils of the apostles that the apostles selected to lead the early church as the apostles were getting older. They wrote between 96 A.D., Clement of Rome writing first, to 156 A.D., where the last of the Apostolic Fathers died, Polycarp. And so you have Ignatius in 107 A.D. en route to be thrown to wild beasts. Over and over again, he refers to Jesus as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This guy, these guys were all bishops in the early church, okay, appointed by the apostles. Um, now, the funny thing is, Ignatius is not arguing that Jesus is God. He's just saying that in passing as if everybody agrees with him. He's actually arguing that Jesus also fully became a man. So he really was born of a virgin. He really did die on the cross of a virgin. See, he's refuting docetism, the belief that Jesus was divine and only appeared to be human, but really wasn't human. Dan Brown is so confused, he's arguing that we should return to Gnosticism and, and a merely human Jesus, and he doesn't even understand the Gnostics acknowledge Jesus is divine, they deny Jesus is human. So not only does he misunderstand Christianity, he must misunderstand ancient Gnosticism. This guy's oblivious to the facts wherever they fall, whether it's on the Christian side or the Gnostic side. Okay? And so, so uh, Constantine supposedly commissioned and financed a new Bible as if the writings we have today... By the way, 107 A.D., Ignatius is writing, Clement to Rome, 96 A.D., Polycarp's writing about 130 A.D. Um, Papias is, 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 is uh, speaking about the writings. And they're all paraphrasing the books we have in the New Testament today. So he's acting like they didn't accept these books till like 325 A.D. No, no. D don't even go there, Mr. Brown. Okay? Um, uh, but whatever the case, uh, he commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Jesus' human traits. Hey, look, my gospel still say Jesus got tired, he got weary, he got hungry. Those are not divine traits. Those are his human traits. Okay? Um, so I, I wonder if this guy's even read the Bible. You know, so many times I've had people telling me, that, oh, the Bible teaches uh, reincarnation. I said, no, it doesn't. I quote Hebrews 9.27. It's the quickest biblical one-line refutation of reincarnation. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Then this, this guy said, well, I saw this lady on TV and she proved that the Bible teaches reincarnation. I, 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 this guy's name was Frank, so I turned to him and I said, Frank, don't be talking about a book you ain't never read. You know, and it's just, it's, it's one of those deals where, uh, I don't know, I get the impression this guy really hasn't spent time reading the Bible. Um, okay, but, uh, so he omitted those Gospels which spoke of, of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. An interesting note, Langdon added, anyone who chose the forbidden Gospels over Constantine's versions, version were deemed, uh, was deemed a heretic. And then he goes on from there. He also, on the page 235, um, uh, this is just part of the narrative, Sophie was, was staring at the most famous fresco of all time, The Last Supper, 
Da Vinci's uh, legendary painting from the wall of Santa Maria uh, del Grazie in Milan. Uh, we're gonna t we'll talk a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, by the way, um, and, and though, you know, we're all guilty of, I'm not going to slam Brown on this because I'm guilty of, sometimes I call Thomas Aquinas Aquinas. Okay? Well, really his name is Thomas, who happened to be from Aquino, Italy, so he was called Thomas Aquinas. Leonardo da Vinci, his real name was Leonardo. So da Vinci isn't his real name. Art experts will, will refer to him as Leonardo. Okay? There's not a whole lot of Leonardos that, you know, um, and, and even with the present actor included, that, 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 you know, when you say Leonardo, everybody knows what, what you're talking about. Uh, but da Vinci's not really his name. I mean, that'd be like calling Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Um, but, uh, but, you know, that, that, that's neither here nor there. Um, let me just give you a, a little bit of an overview. I'm not going to read from a Baines. I'm just going to... His, uh, the truth behind the Da Vinci Code. Um, uh, but here's his, here's his basic storyline, okay? Brown is claiming... Boy, when I look at you, you're blurry now. Um, but... Brown is claiming that Jesus made no claim to be God, okay? Uh, and that he was married to Mary Magdalene, and Jesus picked Mary Magdalene to lead the early church. Now, this ticked off Peter, who wanted to lead the early church, and so he wanted to kind of persecute Mary, and so she had to flee, and at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, she was pregnant with Jesus' daughter, okay? Um... And so it turns out Mary Magdalene, according to this guy, is the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is not the chalice that the Knights Templar were looking for. Okay, um, the Holy Grail instead is Mary Magdalene, who in her womb contained the blood of Jesus, the bloodline of Jesus, so that the royal blood of Jesus would spread down to future. I mean, it sounds a lot like the Nazis and their blood myth uh, of the superiority of the Aryan race, okay? And then, by the way, new, the New Age movement, neo-paganism, um, the first culture to embrace it was Nazi Germany. Uh, the, the Discovery Channel did an outstanding program showing um, how occultic and neo-pagan and New Age the Nazis were. I mean, these guys were even looking for the lost uh, continent of Atlantis, Okay. Um, these guys believed that the Aryan race was divine. All other races were inferior and had to be exterminated so they would not pollute the perfect genetic code of the Aryan race. Okay? Um, so it, basically, in the New Age movement, Nazism is making a comeback. The only difference is there will be no nat national boundaries this time. Uh, the Nazi belief system is being spread on a worldwide scale through the New Age movement. Just, yeah, there's a whole lot of documentation on this. I'll give you just one little, one little clue. Uh, the United Nations, the meditation room, um, uh, that is more of a, of a, of a Hindu, New Age type of, of, of worship place. It's supported by Lucius Trust, which was founded by Helena Blavatsky in the Theosophical Society. And Helena Blavatsky, you know, used to teach... Uh, she was a Russian mystic. She used to teach that Lucifer was actually a good guy who enlightens us and got a bad rap. So the publishing house of the Theosophical Society was actually called Lucifer uh, Publishing. The book sales were low, so they changed the name to Lucius Trust. And now Lucius Trust does more than publishing. It also, you know, 
maintains uh, the meditation room at the United Nations building. So that lets you know, if, if you think the United Nations has the answers to our problems, um, it's just building another brick in the new, new Tower of Babel is all that's doing. Okay, so Samaria is to, to escape from Peter, because she was, I guess she was really the rock upon which the church was supposed to be built, according to Dan Brown. She survived, and uh, some people helped her out, and uh, she found refuge in France. She fled to, to France and gave birth to Jesus' daughter. Um, now, there was a big political agenda in the church, so what they did was they turned the merely human Jesus into a divine Jesus, and since now they made, according to, to Brown at this time, there was lots of goddess worship, there was uh, ancient paganism, there was widespread matriarchy, women, women were ruling in, instead of men and stuff. Now, even, even experts on ancient paganism, some of them pagans themselves, openly acknowledge there's no historical evidence for widespread matriarchy, okay? Now, granted, there's always going to be little pockets. You might find one tribal people where some lady is in charge or a group of ladies are in charge. You're going to find little uh, pockets of matriarchy, but throughout history, and I'm not saying this is right, I'm not saying this is wrong, all I'm saying is this is historical fact, uh, men have ruled. Every once in a while you're going to get a Cleopatra, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And you can even find, I tell you, my mother's side of the family, the Minichinos, the Italians on my side of the family. I mean, it was Grandma Marion, Marion Minichino. Even, even the, the few mafia relatives that I had, they answered to her. If they, you don't want to tick off Marion. So every, even today, you'll find little pockets of matriarchy. But, uh, um, but the idea that under paganism, woman ruled and the worship of the goddess was the main thing, no. Almost all the ancient goddesses had a male, male cohort who usually exercised more authority than her. So even in goddess worship, there was still this male dominance, for better or for worse. That's why they put those words in the, uh, in the marriage vows. Um, but, um, so anyway, so they decided, well, we want, we're afraid of powerful females, you know, and that's the big slam on Christians today. You know, when Ellen Creswell ran for governor... I voted for a female to become governor. I thought she would have made a much better governor than, you know, Gary uh, lock up the state and throw away the key, whatever you call him. But um, I thought she would have been a, a great governor. I'm not afraid of powerful ladies. I'm afraid of ungodly ladies and ungodly men who uh, uh, receive positions of authority. Um, but uh, so there's a stereotyping of the church, a prejudice, um, uh, a stereotype of the church that is, that is vicious here, a vicious attack that is not the way we really are. Uh, he also, Dan Brown, just about equates Christianity with Roman Catholicism. So if the Roman Catholic Pope called a hit on somebody, um, that's Christianity doing it, period. It's like, it's like this guy's either oblivious to the Protestant Reformation um, or even the reformers before that who got killed, burnt at the stake for trying to reform the Catholic Church. He's either oblivious to that or he just uh, purposely ignores that so that he could paint Christianity in its worst possible light. And even then he exaggerates uh, the uh, wrong things that the Roman Church did. Um, whatever the case, uh, Christ's line grew. You know, they're in secret in France. And until the uh, 5th century, and then they intermarried with uh, French royal blood. 
and created the uh, uh, Morovian bloodline. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, but whatever the case, there's supposed to be this hidden uh, royal French line that is now intermarried with the royal blood of, of, of Jesus. Um, um, but by the 5th century, um, the Catholic Church was still a- attacking Mary Magdalene, so they, they decided at that point to turn her into a prostitute. And so then from, from you get a lot of sermons preaching that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. It's actually... Uh, uh, pope Gregory, who was less than infallible, I don't believe any pope was infallible, um, but he made a mistake because it was, you know, you had a prostitute anointing the feet of Jesus in one gospel, and in another gospel you have Mary, the um, uh, sister of Lazarus, anointing the feet of Jesus, and then, and then somewhere else in the gospels um, uh, you have uh, Mary Magdalene is mentioned, as a woman whom seven demons were cast out of her and that she was one of the wealthy ladies that was supporting the ministry of Jesus. Okay? Um, nowhere does the Scripture say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene could have been 85 years old. Okay? Um, we have no idea. We're never told whether she was young or old. We do know one thing, though. About Well, we know several things about Mary Magdalene. She supported, financially supported the ministry of Jesus. She was a you know, follower of Jesus. Um, a disciple of Jesus, um, but we also know that she was not married. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene. See, it's Mary of, you know, Magdala, this, 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 the city with that name. Um, you see, in, in ancient times, in ancient times, if you were not married, if you were a female and you were not married, they named you after the city you came from. If you were married, they, they named you your quote-unquote, last name became, your, you know, of your husband, okay? Uh, Mary Joseph's wife, that type of thing, okay? Now, when your son becomes real famous because he's like raising the dead, um, then you, you might be known as Mary, the mother of Jesus, okay? Um, but to identify a woman by the city in which she lived not only means that she was not married, it probably means she was never married. Okay, so she would have been Mary, Jesus' wife, if she had been married to Jesus. By the way, if God becomes a man for the purpose of saving mankind, you think he's going to have enough time to say, well, while doing that, while saving mankind, I also want to get married, have a couple kids, get a nice house, a white picket fence, two cars in a driveway. Oh, I can't preach the Sermon on the Mount today because my kids got the flu. You know, where I gotta, I gotta drive my kids to soccer practice. I'm not saying those are bad things, okay? But that's not as important as saving the world. And when you're, when you are God and you are here to save the world, it just makes sense to me, you're not gonna take the time to get married. See, Jesus wasn't coming, didn't come to earth to say, you know, um, um, I'm a human and most human males have, um, have a need for, a, and a desire for, a, for a mate. And to get married, Jesus wasn't here to meet his needs. He was here to meet our need. He was here to provide salvation for us. And um, so there's absolutely no evidence that he was married. All the evidence goes against that, as it does with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, another guy whose ministry was just too important to have the time to get married. And um, um, Dan Brown argues that if you were a Jew, a first century Jew had to get married. No. 
First century Jews, probably Jewish males, probably 99.5% of them, even rabbis, uh, got married. But that 0.5%, many times, you know, more, more times than not, their mission, they, they decided to devote their lives solely to the cause of God and therefore chose not to get married. In fact, some of them probably, John the Baptist probably said, you know, if I get married, that would be a total injustice to the lady I married. Because now she's got to wear camel hair and eat locusts and wild honey and live with me in the wilderness. That's not, that's not the way to take care of your family. So, um, um, so there were those people who would say, hey, my mission is too important. I've got too much time to spend serving God. I don't have time to take care of a family properly. Um, I'm not going to do that. And, and there were Jews in the first century A.D. and there have been Jews and Gentiles throughout history who have thought that same way. Um, and uh, he denies that fact. Okay, so, then, so, so now you got this French royal line. And so the Roman Catholic authorities decided to uh, try to destroy all the records that told the true story of Mary Magdalene's life. Uh, but the documents were secretly hidden uh, beneath the ruins of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. So, so trust Dan Brown on this. We haven't found them, but underneath that temple, there's the true records about Mary Magdalene. So, and, and we Christians, we're guilty of blind faith, but... Just trust Dan Brown. He knows what's going on. Um, okay, and, and then he's got the Knights Templar. Now, these guys were a bunch of occultists, okay? And they were in it for the money. And, uh, but he's got them as the, the, the truth-honoring knights. Well, Dan Brown's not an expert on truth, obviously, at this point. But, um, but they were the truth-honoring knights called the Knights Templar, um, who uh, basically were um, trying to protect and pass on from generation to generation the uh, suppressed truth about Mary Magdalene, okay? Um, now, the Knights Templar, they, they recovered the, the documents, but then Pope Clement V, uh, of Fran- uh, Pope Clement V conspired with the King of France to have the Knights rounded up and killed, but a few of the Knights uh, survived. Um, and, and then they established an order, uh, the Priory of Sion, where they hid these documents, um, and so, and then he talks about the um, again the the Holy Grail is is a metaphor for Mary Magdalene, who is the bearer of Christ's uh, uh, bloodline, and um, and so the quest for the Holy Grail was to find her bones and to nail kneel before her bones. Uh, man, I tell you, you write a book like this fifty years ago, and no Amer- no Americans would long to nail to kneel before the bones of a, of a dead lady. You know, I mean, it's just like, but that's where we are as America. We have rejected the true God of the Bible, and now, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you, you Christians are idiots for worshiping Jesus. What are you doing? Well, I, I wish I could find the, the bones of Mary Magdalene. I want to kneel down before them and, and worship them. It's like, you know, get a life there. Um, um, whatever the case, uh, so the secrets fell into the hands of this priory of Sion, the Holy Grail is really, really Mary Magdalene and the royal bloodline of Jesus, which, which blended with the French line. And Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, and uh, other famous uh, Renaissance men were supposedly members of the secret order, the Priory of Sion. And so uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, his Last Supper, supposedly contains clues, symbols, and codes that uh, teach the truth about Mary Magdalene. So, 
Um, so that's basically the, the, the storyline here. And as Sophie finds this out, I'll, I'll kill the ending of the book for you. As Sophie finds this out, she finds out she's in the royal... Whoa, what a surprise. She's in the royal... She has a French name and she's in the royal um, bloodline of Jesus. So this lady, Sophie Nauvoo, whose name means new wisdom... She finds the new wisdom looking within. It's within her. It's the blood running through her veins. And that's what Gnosticism wants us to believe, that uh, truth is found by looking within, not looking at objective real history, but looking within ourselves, that small voice inside. And, and ultimately, uh, neo-paganism, you end up with the same, the same lie that you find in the garden when Lucifer, speaking to the serpent, told Eve that if you eat from the forbidden fruit, you will not die, but you will become like God. And um, so uh, I think we're going to have to... Well, let's just, let me just start on the historical and theological inaccuracies, and we'll, we'll wrap it up in just a couple minutes, and we'll pick it up from there. Uh, so basically what I need to do, talking about Dan Brown, is just pointing out some of his historical and theological inaccuracies, okay? First off, he misrepresents early Christianity as believing in a merely human Jesus. Okay? Christianity taught from the start that Jesus is fully God and he became a man, so now he is fully God and fully man. Uh, you know, the Jesus Seminar is as far left as you will go among scholars, New Testament scholars, and even they admit that Paul started his writings about 49 or 50 A.D., and that Paul, from the start of his writings, taught that Jesus is fully God. Okay? Now, what they'll try to deny is that Paul really got that from the apostles, but that's hard. They don't want to call Paul a liar. Paul said that he got the right hand of fellowship from Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, when they recognized that he was teaching the same gospel they were teaching. Okay? Yet, Paul does not... Larry Hurtado, from the University of Edinburgh, one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, in his work, The Lord Jesus Christ, just came out a few months ago, about 700 pages. He argues that, you know, Paul liked to argue. Paul liked to argue. Um, and, and in his writings, he argued. If, if there's disagreement in the church, he will argue for his point because he knows it's the, it's the true issue. And God, you know, I'm sure Paul had some errors, but God did not allow them to creep into the Word. Paul never argued that Jesus is God. He always mentioned it in passing. So Larry Hurtado says, therefore, Paul was not teaching something new. The deity of Christ was something that was universally accepted in the church, and this belief goes back to the early 30s A.D. What Larry Hurtado was saying is, it goes right back to Christ's death and resurrection itself. Okay? Now, Jesus was teaching he was God while he was walking the earth. The apostles just said, oh, he can't mean that. He probably means something else. When they saw him risen from the dead, it was like, okay, now we know what he means. Okay? Um, so, um, um, you know, I, I have these questions here for, for Dan Brown. Uh, would, would, would the authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, try Jesus and uh, convict him and then turn him over to the Romans would the Jewish authorities want to execute a merely human Jesus? See, every time we try to water down Jesus and turn him into less than fully God, you always end up with a politically correct Jesus that nobody would bother to kill. 
Okay? Um, if Jesus did not claim to be God, then why would the Sanhedrin find him guilty of blasphemy? He being a man makes himself out to be God and then turn him over to the Romans to try to, to, to nail him with a, a, a charge of treason. Second question I have for Mr. Brown there. Would Rome persecute Christians for believing in a merely human Jesus? See, the whole, the whole reason, and there's no dispute about this. Historians tell us the whole reason why Christians were put to death and that the persecution stopped around the time of Nicaea. It didn't start. So this was due to the beliefs of Christians. Uh, Roman persecution really started heavy about 64 A.D., lasting to about 310, 315 A.D., until Constantine made a profession of faith in Christ as the Roman emperor. Okay? So from about 64 A.D., the reign of Caesar Nero, to Constantine, about 315 A.D., okay, um, during this time frame, Christians were being put to death because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They refused to say Caesar is God. Instead, they said Jesus is Lord. And we know that saying goes all the way back to the book of Romans, which even the Jesus Seminar accepts as uh, an authentic writing of Paul. About 56 A.D. was when it was written. And Paul talks about a baptismal formula where you say Jesus is Lord. See, we coined the phrase Jesus is Lord because the Romans were forcing people to say Caesar is Lord. It goes right back to the early days of Christianity. Uh, N.T. Wright's work, um, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and uh, his, uh, his other works on, uh, on who Jesus is, shows that the, the belief that Jesus is fully God goes all the way back to the apostles themselves, the eyewitnesses who knew Jesus. Um, in fact, Larry Hurtado, getting back to him, he refers to worship of Jesus as, as Binitarian worship. So before we were full, fully figured out the doctrine of the Trinity... The early church worshipped both the Father and the Son as equals. And they were still scratching their heads over the issue of the Holy Spirit. He traces Binitarian worship all the way back to the early 30s uh, A.D. So, we'll close with that. and We'll close with just the reading of one passage, Philippians 2. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I don't know any New Testament scholar who rejects Philippians as being written by Paul. Paul is writing Philippians, I believe, about 60 A.D. Um, and he quotes an ancient creed in this, which probably goes back to the early to mid-30s A.D. So he quotes an ancient creed here. And, um, and in this ancient creed, he talks about the true Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus of history, the true Jesus of the eyewitnesses, the Jesus that the early church in the 30s A.D. believed in, not the false Jesus of history, the false Jesus of Dan Brown. And uh, so it starts at verse 5 and it runs through uh, verse uh, 11. And listen to what this, this creed that Paul quotes. And Paul's not going to quote a creed that is teaching heresy. He's an authoritative leader in the early church. Um, and by the way, Paul claimed he had seen the risen Christ on numerous occasions. And even the Jesus Seminar will not call him a liar. So when everything's said and done, you can choose between the Jesus Seminar or even more radical than that, Dan Brown, or you can choose the Apostle Paul. But I don't know if Dan Brown would call Paul a liar because, I mean, he really isn't an expert. But the experts who deal with it have to acknowledge that Paul was sincere enough to die and suffer for his beliefs. Nobody wants to call him a liar. He claimed he saw Jesus risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, he claims that over 500 people at one time 
saw Jesus risen from the dead, and most of them were still alive. So if you don't believe him, go and question him. Nobody wants to call Paul a liar. Paul said he preached the same gospel message as Peter, John, and James. Nobody wants to call him a liar. Um, you know, it's, for me in my house, I got to choose between Jesus Seminar, the Da Vinci Code, or the Apostle Paul. I, mean, I ain't going to die for the Da Vinci Code. I ain't going to die for Marcus Borg and the Jesus Seminar. But I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to die for what the Apostle Paul taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the Apostle Paul is willing to be beaten with rods three times, scourged numerous times, shipwrecked, ridiculed, chased, and eventually beheaded. Um, I know these other guys are willing to spout their politically correct teachings if that makes them richer and more popular. Uh, but me, as for me and my house, we're going to side with the Lord Jesus Christ and his servant, the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Paul says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he quotes this ancient creed. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Old Testament says every knee will someday bow to Yahweh. It's Lord with all capital letters. It's Yahweh. Paul says Jesus is Yahweh because every knee will bow to him someday. Um... And then Paul says about Jesus in this ancient creed, this is what the earliest church, uh, earliest Christians believed, that Jesus, who being in the form of God, uh, being, uh, basically the NIV breaks it down for us and translates this, because we think a form is a physical thing, okay? The form, the shape of something. Uh, for the um, ancient Greeks and even the ancient Jews, the form, okay, the, the matter, the material, was the clay, the clump of, the lump of clay, okay? The form was the idea of the sculptor that he put into the clay that gave it its shape. So the shape isn't material. The shape is the idea that's been impressed upon the material thing. So the form is basically uh, the idea or the nature or the classification of the thing you're talking about. So in other words, the NIV is correct to translate that, talking about Jesus, who, uh, who continues to exist in nature as God. And then goes on to say something along the lines, even though he continues to exist in nature as God, he didn't cling to his equal privileges with God, but instead he emptied himself, he humbled himself and veiled his glory by becoming a man for the purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. This is the true Jesus of history. The Jesus of the Bible is the true Jesus of history. There's been attacks on him for all 2,000 years since he visited the planet Earth. There's going to continue to be attacks on him. But when everything is said and done, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Jesus of history, 
is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, become a man to provide salvation for us. And so Dan Brown doesn't want to join us when we bow before Jesus. But we need to pray for Dan Brown because the Bible teaches he will join us and bow before Jesus. So if he doesn't accept Jesus as a Savior and do it willingly, um, he'll do so against his will. When, when the Lord Jesus returns, you're not going to have a choice to bow before him. It's not going to make you a believer. God's not going to force you into heaven. But when the Almighty Creator and Redeemer returns to this planet, everyone on earth, under the earth, in heaven, everyone will have to bend the knee and bow before the Lord Jesus and proclaim that He is the Lord of all. That's not the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code, but that's okay with me because the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code never existed. Okay, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just pray, Lord, that uh, You give us more of an appreciation uh, for studying uh, Your Word at a deeper level and uh, that You give us more of an appreciation for how You work through the church throughout history, how you guided the church to recognize uh, the books that you wanted in the New Testament rather than these false teachings that came over a hundred years after your son walked the earth. I thank you for guiding your church in the past and I pray that you continue to guide your your church and our church uh, in the future. And So guide us into your truth, Lord. Guide us into how we are to uh, represent you and live our lives in submission to you and proclaim your truth and, and to refute the lies and the errors of those uh, anti-Christians who would like to attack the Christian faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help uh, others throughout our country and throughout the world to, to see through the lies of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and that they would see the light of your gospel, the truth of your gospel uh, and the, the good news that your son has become a man and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us. And someday, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, will return to this planet and take his stand upon the earth. We pray for Dan Brown. We pray for his salvation. We pray for the salvation of all who, who read his book and would be deceived by it. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll keep them from being deceived and guide them into the truth that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord and King of all. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.